Chapter 13 of Ox Team Days on the Oregon Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ox Team Days on the Oregon Trail by Ezra Meeker and Howard Driggs. Chapter 13 Moving from the Columbia to Puget Sound. Can I get home tonight? I asked myself. It was an afternoon of the last week in June in 1853, and the sun was yet high. I was well up the left bank of the Cowlitz River. How far I could not tell, for there were no milestones on the crooked, half-obstructed trail leading downstream. At best it would be a race with the sun, but the days were long and the twilight was long, and I would camp that much near home if I made haste. My pack had been discarded on the sound, and I had neither coat nor blanket. I wore a heavy woolen shirt, a slouch hat, and worn shoes. Both hat and shoes gave ample ventilation. Socks I had none, neither had I suspenders, an improvised belt taking their place. I was dressed for the race and was eager for the trial. At Olympia I had parted with my brother, who had returned to stay at the clams we had taken, while I was to go home for the wife and baby, to remove them to our new home. I did not particularly mind the camping, but I did not fancy the idea of lying out so near home if by extra exertion I could reach the cabin before night. There was no friendly ox to snuggle up to for warmth, as in so many of the bivouacs on the plains. But I had matches, and there were many mossy places for bed under the friendly shelter of drooping cedars. We never thought of catching cold from lying on the ground or on cedar boughs, or from getting a good drenching. After all, the cabin could not be reached, as the trail could not be followed at night. Slacking pace at nightfall to cool my system gradually, I finally made my camp and slept as soundly as if on a bed of down. My consolation was that the night was short, and I could see to travel by three o'clock. I do not look upon those years of camp and cabin life as years of hardship. To be sure, our food was plain, as well as our dress— our hours of labor were long, and the labor itself was frequently severe. The pioneers appeared rough and uncouth, yet underlying all this there ran a vein of good cheer, of hopefulness. We never watched for the sun to go down, or the seven o'clock whistle, or for the boss to quicken our steps. The days were always too short, and interest in our work was always unabated. The cabin could not be seen until the trail came quite near it, when I caught sight of the curl of smoke, I knew I was almost there. Then I saw the cabin and a little lady in almost bloomer dress milking the cow. She never finished milking that cow, nor did she ever milk any cow when her husband was at home. There were so many things to talk about that we could scarcely tell where to begin or where to stop. Much of the conversation naturally centered on the question of our moving to a new home. Why at Olympia? Eggs were a dollar a dozen. I saw them selling at that. The butter you have there would bring you a dollar a pound as fast as you could weigh it out. I saw stuff they called butter sell for that. Potatoes are selling for three dollars a bushel and onions at four. Everything the farmer raises sells high. Who buys? Oh, almost everybody has to buy. There are ships and timber camps and hotels and... Where do they get the money? Everybody seems to have money. Some take it there with them. Men working in the timber camps get $4 a day and their board. At one place, they pay $4 a cord for wood to ship to San Francisco. 
and a man can sell all the shingles he can make at four dollars a thousand. I was offered five cents a foot for piles. If we had Buck and Dandy over there, we could make twenty dollars a day putting in piles. Where would you get the piles? Off the government land, of course. I'll help themselves to what they want. Then there are the fish and the clams and oysters and... But what about the land for the claim? That question was a stumper. The little wife never lost sight of that bargain made before we were married. Now I found myself praising a country for the agricultural qualities of which I could not say much. But if we could sell produce higher, might we not well lower our standard of an ideal farm? The claim I had taken was described with a touch of apology, in quality falling so far below what we'd hoped to acquire. However, we decided to move and began to prepare for the journey. The wife, baby, bedding, ox yoke, and log chain were sent up the calyx in a canoe. Buck and Dandy and I took the trail. On this occasion, I was ill-prepared for a cool night camp, having neither blanket nor coat. I had expected to reach Hard Bread's Hotel, where the people in the canoe would stop overnight, but I could not make it, so again I lay out on the trail. Hard Bread's, an odd name for a hotel, was so called because the old widower that kept the place fed his patrons on hardtack three times a day. I found that my wife had not fared any better than I had on the trail, and in fact, not so well. The floor of the cabin, that is, the hotel, was a great deal harder than the sand spit where I had passed the night. I had plenty of pure, fresh air, while she, in a closed cabin, and in the same room with many others, had neither fresh air nor freedom from creepy things that make life miserable. With her shoes for a pillow, a shawl for covering, small wonder that she reported I did not sleep a wink last night. We soon arrived at the Cowlitz Landing, the end of the canoe journey. Striking the tent that had served us so well on the plains, and making a cheerful campfire, we speedily forgot the hard experiences of the trail. Fifty miles more of travel lay before us, and such a road. However, we had one consolation. It would be worse in winter than at that time. Our wagon had left at the Dalles, and we had never seen or heard of it again. Our cows were gone, given for provender, to save the lives of the oxen during the deep December snow. So when we took account of stock, we had the baby, buck, and dandy, a tent, an ox yoke, and chain, enough clothing and bedding to keep us comfortable, a very little food, and no money. The money had all been expended on the canoe passage. Should we pack the oxen and walk? and carry the baby, or should we build a sled and drag our things over the sound, or should I make an effort to get a wagon? This last proposition was the most attractive. And so next morning, driving my oxen before me, and leaving wife and baby to take care of the camp, I began to search for a wagon. That great-hearted pioneer, John R. Jackson, did not hesitate a moment, stranger though I was, to say, yes, you can have two if you need them. Jackson had settled there eight years before, ten miles out from the landing, and now had an abundance around him. Like all the earlier pioneers, he took a pride in helping others who came later. He would not listen to our proceeding any farther before the next day. He insisted on entertaining us in his comfortable cabin, and sent us on our way in the morning rejoicing in plenty. Without special incident, we were in due time arrived at the falls of the Deschutes, Tumwater, and on the shore of Puget Sound, here a camp must be established again. The wife and baby were left there while I drove the wagon back over the tedious road to Jackson's, 
and then returned with the oxen to Tidewater. My feelings may well be imagined when, upon returning, I found wife, baby, and tent all gone. I knew that smallpox was raging among the Indians, and that a camp where it was prevalent was less than a quarter of a mile away. The dread disease had tares then that it does not now possess. Could it be possible my folks had been taken sick and had been removed? The question was soon solved. It appeared that I had scarcely got out of sight on my trip back with the oxen before one of those royal pioneer matrons had come to the camp. She pleaded and insisted, and finally almost frightened the little wife into going with her and sharing her house, which was nearby, but out of danger from the smallpox. God bless those earlier pioneers. They were all good to us, sometimes to the point of embarrassment in their generous hospitality. Oliver was to have had the cabin ready by the time I returned. He had not only done that, but had taken the boat and had left no sign to tell us where either brother or boat could be found. Not knowing what else to do, I paddled over to the town of Stilicum. There I found out where the boat and the provisions had been left, and after an earnest parley, succeeded in getting possession. With my canoe in tow, I soon made my way back to where my little flock was and speedily transferred all to the spot that was to be our island dwelling. We set up our tent and felt at home once more. Stilicum, three miles across the bay, had grown during my absence, and in the distance it looked like a city. In fact, as well as in name, Mount Rainier looked bigger and taller than ever. Even the songs of the Indians sounded better. The canoes looked more graceful, and the paddles seemed to be welded more expertly. Everything looked cheerful. Everything interested us, especially the crows, with their trick of breaking clams by rising in the air and dropping them on the boulders. There were so many new things to observe that for a time we almost forgot that we were nearly out of provisions and money and did not know what had happened to Oliver. Next morning Oliver returned to the village, finding that the boat and provisions had been taken and seeing smoke in the bite he surmised what had happened and came paddling across to the tent. He had received a tempting offer to help load a ship and had just completed his contract. As a result of this work, he was able to exhibit a slug of California gold and other money that looked precious indeed in our eyes. The building of our second cabin with its stone fireplace, cat and clay chimney, lumber floor, real window with glass in it, together with the high post bedstead, made out of tapering cedar saplings, the table fastened to the wall, the rustic chairs seemed but like a place bell. No eight-hour day there, eighteen would be nearer the mark. We never tired. It was in this same year, 1853, that Congress cut off from Oregon the region that now comprises the state of Washington and all of Idaho, north of the Snake River. The new district was called Washington Territory. So we who had moved out to the Oregon country found ourselves living in Washington. End of chapter 13. Recorded by Lyle Wilson, Haymarket, Virginia, October 2009.